And thank you all for making the point to be here today. And I uh, know you've already received a blessing through what God has allowed us to experience thus far in our worship. And those of you that were in Christian growth group Bible study, uh, I know you received a blessing through the lesson we had this morning, both the children's lesson and our adult lesson. Today, I'll ask, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke for some time now using the title simply of follow me because that's the call of Christ to those that are drawn to Christ by God the Father uh, for salvation and for eternal life. As you're turning and find your place there, chapter 14 of Luke, verse 25 is where we'll start. I was thinking about in a recent edition of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association's monthly magazine decision, an article that was written by a gentleman by the name of Kirby Anderson that was entitled, Equip the Next Generation with Bible Truth. It caught my attention. The opening line in that article was really quite sobering. Let me read it to you. Quote, young people who identify as born again tend to have little knowledge of God's word. They were comparing survey that was done of that age group, people from ages 18 to 55, a survey that was done in 2010, and then a more recent survey that was done in 2020, and it was glaringly apparent the percentage of young people, young adults, who were unaffiliated with any religion, and nowadays are commonly referred to as nuns, not the Catholic ladies that serve in the church, but the N-O-N-E-S. That segment of our population has significantly risen from 13% back in 2010 to 35%. Just think about that. In 10 years, a significant number of the respondents were rarely or never in church. They completely lacked a meaningful Christian worldview. And when asked this question, they agreed with this statement, rather, quote, Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus are all valid ways to God. Two-thirds, these are born people claiming to be born-again Christians. Two-thirds agreed that was true. You know, you contrast that over and against what the Scripture teaches about what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian disciple? You know, could it be that we have raised over the last generation, a, a generation of so-called Christians who in actuality don't even know God? They don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and certainly have no concept of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the text that we see today in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 5, Jesus is, is describing very clearly, very pointedly, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Jesus didn't come into this world to amass for himself multitudes of people who were charmed by him and, and liked him and, and hence just wanted to be affiliated with him. Oh, no. 
The Lord's purpose in coming into this world was that he might make disciples dedicated, committed, faith-filled followers of Christ who in turn would make other disciples. And you'll see Jesus specifying some of the criteria that distinguishes those who are true followers of Jesus Christ, true disciples. And I would invite you to do the same thing that I did through the preparation process of this message. I would challenge you to ask yourself, does that describe me? Can I say with confidence and clarity that yes, indeed, I am a true disciple? Well, let's take a look at some of the things that the Lord pointed out here, and I think they'll be worth revisiting. This is nothing brand new to those of you that have been in church and certainly been part of Cornerstone. But first, Jesus helps us to see that true disciples put Jesus above all other relationships. Above all other relationships. There in verse 25, we see, and great multitudes went with him. In other words, they went along with him. They were along for the ride. Jesus had no problem attracting a crowd because of his miracles. If he wasn't feeding them, he was dazzling them with divine power. If that, if that wasn't enough, he was dazzling them with divine authority and the teachings about the kingdom of God. And he drew people from all over. And, and even at this later stage in Jesus's ministry, as he's heading through the region of Judea on his way to Jerusalem, where he has a, 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 a date, if you can call it that, with a cross. The crowds are still coming. And, and so notice what Jesus says there in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Folks, that is a crowd thinner. It's obvious at that point Jesus wasn't interested in having multitudes walking along with him. Because he says, if you are truly serious about being one of my followers, then you have to put me above all other relationships. In other words, for true disciples, Jesus made it quite clear right here. Those two verses, their love for the Lord would surpass all other loves. Does yours? What does your love for Christ really look like? Our relationship with the Lord Jesus supersedes all other relationships. And Jesus was using some of the heavier titles there. He's going right to the heart when he's talking about immediate family, the core group around you. God's word demands such preeminent love. We know that Jesus told us in Matthew's gospel, chapter 22, verse 37 and 38. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your being, you shall love God. That wasn't the first time that the Jewish people had heard that. They had heard it in the Shema, out of the Old Testament. They knew that that was the first and the greatest commandment, Jesus said. You've got to love me with every ounce of your being, everything in you. You love me, even about those in this earthly life, you tend to love the most. You know, it's interesting in the Revelation in chapter 2, 
Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus through the Apostle John in the letter that was written to them. And, you know, originally there or started out in, in chapter two, Jesus was commending the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your works. You've got lots of works. I know you labor. I know your patience. I know your diligence to, to test the apostles and to make sure that you don't have false apostles. And I know all about your how you persevere and your patience and how you labor. Oh, oh, he was going down the resume and it looked so good. But you know that when he got to verse four, Jesus said, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You can do the works, you can have the programs, you can go through the motions, you can build the buildings, you can amass the money. But if you don't have that first love, Jesus says, it's for naught. And when he says that first love, he's not talking chronologically as if, okay, here was you had your love for your mama first and your daddy and then your brothers and sisters. And then down the way came when you love me. Oh, no, no, no. He's talking in terms of preeminence. Ranking. When he says you have abandoned your first love, the love that should be at the very top of your heart's list, the love for the Lord. Jesus' sobering words would surely make any half-hearted follower think twice before signing on as a follower of his crew. It's interesting because going back to Luke chapter 14, but back up just a few pages to chapter 12 of Luke. We have already looked at this and I'm not going to expound on it, but I want to draw reference to it because in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, verse 51, Jesus had talked about the, the relationship of earthly relationships with Christ. And he made a point. When you choose to follow me, when you choose to make me the preeminent love of your life, be ready. Be ready. It's not going to bring a lot of Love and, 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 and bonding and peace into the family. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, verse 51. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother and daughter-in-law against uh, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus said, look, when you begin to get your, your love in the right priority order and you're putting me first, he said, beware because it's going to begin to split families. And Jesus didn't waste any words here in chapter 14, verse 26, when he says, if anyone comes to me. All the multitude, he's saying, but he's looking at his disciples, particularly the 12, because he wants to make sure they get this rock solid in their minds. He says, if you choose to come after me, then let me tell you something. You've got to hate your father and your mother. And he went down the list of immediate family. And I know that's shocking. I was brought up in a household, a Christian household, praise the Lord. And, and you best watch how you speak. And I can still hear my mom saying, don't you let me hear you use that hate word. I hate it. No, she didn't say that. Literally, it is a strong word. It is an intense word. Hate in the, in the English dictionary says 
Hate is intense hostility, extreme dislike or disgust. But don't miss this, because when Jesus is talking here in reference to the immediate family and he used the word hate, he wasn't using it in a literal sense or in the literal sense. Scholars tell us that in that context, he was speaking in a Semitic manner. In other words, he was talking in terms of preference. If you don't prefer me over your father, prefer me over your mother, over your wife, over your children, over your siblings. Oh, yeah. And even your own life. And we get a good illustration of that in the prophet Malachi. You may recall in chapter one of Malachi, verses two and three, God said through Malachi, I have loved Jacob, but hated Esau. But he's speaking in that same Semitic fashion. We know from the scriptures, God didn't hate Esau. He was very displeased with him. But the fact is, he his divine preference for Jacob was infinitely greater than it was for Esau. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's not asking you to go beat up your father and your mother and treat them with hatred. Oh, no, no, no. But he said, make sure that your preference for these relationships takes second stage to me. I read through my Voice of the Martyrs prayer guide on a regular basis. And we use reference to persecuted Christians in our kingdom concerns and our prayer guide here at church. I think it's important, and I appreciate the attention that Tim gives to that. But in that prayer guide, they regularly will talk about the, the people, population, a lot of the things that Tim covers and, 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 and their cultural experiences and whatever, but then they'll talk about those who are Christians. And so oftentimes they're dealing with these cultures that are predominantly Muslim, radical Muslim cultures. We can't appreciate, I don't believe, what it means for a person to come to Jesus Christ, to commit to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, compared to what our brothers and sisters in these countries that I'm speaking of go through. And, and in that prayer description, they will not only list the types of persecution that people are suffering, they'll often list the, what they call the persecutors. Sometimes it's the national government that will come after you if you profess to believe in Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's the local government that will come after you and make life hard for you, whether that means arresting you, put you in prison or, or you know, uh, beat you, whatever, sometimes kill you. But the thing that struck me is in that group consistently, it's family, family. In so many of these cultures, like we were talking, Tim was referring to India, people who, who abandon, turn their back on Hinduism and choose to make a public profession of Jesus Christ. Listen, it's not uncommon for their families to turn on them and life, make life miserable. I read one account of a, of a young lady that became a Christian and her father had just declared her to be dead. And even put, put her name out there like a hit list. Because to the family, that person is bringing shame to them. Oh, Jesus said, don't think that I came to bring peace. If you love me more than your family, 
If you make me the preeminent love of your life and you choose to follow me, listen, he says, there will be there will be a price to pay. And yet Jesus didn't back off on that. I was reading about one believer who converted from Islam in the nation of Jordan. And for a Christian to convert the Christian or uh, 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 Muslim to convert to Christianity and it become public knowledge. In the Islam radical nation like that, they will routinely at the hands of their family. They will be stripped of their home. They will be stripped of their spouse, their children, their jobs. And don't even think about trying to get a job. Not in that community. And they will lose their inheritance. Why? Because they chose to follow Jesus Christ. Listen, when Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he has his own life. Listen, Jesus was not in any way implying that he was anti-family. The Lord is not attacking family. Let's just be refreshed in our, our memory from the scriptures, okay? Jesus, God, the Bible, they're pro-family from the beginning to the end. There's no doubt. My goodness gracious, the scriptures make it quite clear that God created man and woman and they became one and became one flesh. And they, there was the beginning of the family. God is the architect of the family, which is the most com basic component of human society. We know that God is pro-family as you at the beginning of the covenant relationship between Israel and God, Jehovah. In, that, in the Ten Commandments there in, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, what did the Lord say about your relationship with your parents? He says, honor your father and your mother. What does the Lord say in the Ten Commandments about the, the marital relationships? He says, thou shalt not commit adultery. The scripture are all pro-family. You know, I remember one incident in Matthew chapter 15, verses 3 through 9, where Jesus was confronting the Pharisees and the scribes because it had been, it was public knowledge that they were neglecting their responsibilities to their aging parents as a result of their own selfish greed. They were looking for loopholes not to take care of aging parents. And Jesus blasted. Oh, the Bible is all pro-family, folks. Don't, don't take away from this something that is not intended. I think one of the most touching scenes in the scriptures that just gives you an idea of how important family was to the Lord Jesus Christ is there in John chapter 19, verse 26, when our Lord is hanging on that cross in agony, dying for our sins, and he looks down and he sees his apostle John standing there and he says to John, John, behold your mother, looking at his aging mother, Mary. And he said to Mary, woman, behold your son, talking about John. Even as Jesus is in the agony of suffocating to death and his body is screaming with pain and life is ebbing from his body. Family was so important that he made arrangements that his elderly mother would be taken care of. Listen, it's time that you and me examine carefully the love that we profess for the Lord Jesus Christ. No one and nothing should ever rival our superior love for him if you are one of his true disciples. And I emphasize that word true 
And I use it interchangeably with the word genuine or authentic because you know and I know too that there are a lot of people who use the title Christian pretty loosely. And yet they don't love the Lord. Not as the Lord describes there. So true disciples put Jesus above all other relationships. We move along in this text and we see that also true, authentic, genuine disciples willingly take up the cross. Willingly take up the cross. Because as Jesus is teaching, look at verse 27. It says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Now I realize in our culture today, you know, people don't like to often talk about self-denial and suffering for a cause or whatever. You know, we live in a very uh, self-centered and, and uh, pleasure-oriented and comfort-oriented society. The call to discipleship is a clear call to self-denial, folks. Make no mistake about that. Earlier in the Luke's, in Luke's gospel, we saw in chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus issued a similar call. And he says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily. Not just once a year when they have revival services in the church. Every day when you get up and your feet hit the floor, he says, every day take up your cross and do what? Follow me. I'll set the agenda. I'll set the pattern. I'll tell you where we're going. I'll tell you who we'll encounter. You just take up the cross. You know, the cross to most people in our country, in our society, is simply a, a harmless symbol of jewelry or decoration, maybe a marker on a tombstone in a graveyard. Oh, boy. Back in the first century, let me tell you something. You mentioned the cross. Thanks to the brutal Roman Empire, and people began to shake in their boots because the cross meant suffering. It meant pain. It meant shame. And it meant death. And for Jesus to say, if any man come after me, let him take up his cross. Or here in verse 27, whoever does not bear his cross, if you're not even willing to suffer for me because you love me preeminently, Jesus says you might as well stay at home. Because you're not one of my followers. When the Lord Jesus incorporated the cross into his radical call to his followers, folks, it clearly signaled his demand for personal sacrifice, even ultimate sacrifice. And authentic followers of Christ gladly, I emphasize that, gladly make sacrifices. They don't go around moaning and groaning and looking up to heaven and say, oh Lord, I hope you're satisfied. I lost that promotion because I had a Bible on my desk, you know. Oh, suffering. Get over it. I'm so humbled when I read about these persecuted Christians who knew, they knew before they made the decision, they knew the cost that was coming with it and they loved Jesus so much. There was no second thought. I remember back in the 1950s, missionary Jim Elliott, who was murdered by the very primitive tribe of Alka Indians in South America, deep in the Amazon jungle, that he and his missionary friends went to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the very ones that they went and spent such a long time preparing the way they would they flew in their airplane over the tribe and they would drop gifts down and they ways to just kind of build a rapport and, and they they carefully meticulously patiently finally when it appeared that they were ready to, to to land on the river there next to the village and they they established at first what appeared to be a friend, friendly relationship with the tribe out of nowhere one day tribe turned on them viciously and stabbed them multiple, multiple times, ran them through with spears. And they lay there in the shallow waters of that river, their blood streaming downstream. Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, found in his diary these words that Jim Elliot wrote prior to that incident, in which he said, quote, it is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Oh, listen, Christ's call for people to come to follow him is a call to sacrifice, but it's worth it. But it's worth it. I love that parable, actually two very brief parables in Matthew chapter 13, and I'm not going to expand, but I want to read it to you. You'll get the gist of it. It's so Powerful. <laughs> Jesus says about this parable in, in Matthew 13, verse 44. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has. Not just his surplus, not just what he could afford. He sold everything. And then he went on in verse 45 and told a similar parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Wow. Jesus helps his disciples to see that any sacrifice we make on this side of eternity tells in comparison to the glorious prize of being made a citizen of the eternal kingdom of God. There's no regrets in the heart of Jim Elliot in the sacrifice that he and his friends made. He knew going into that primitive barbaric tribe in, in the jungles of South America, he could see beyond the suffering. He could see beyond the potential death. He saw the glory of the kingdom of God that awaited those who loved Jesus preeminently so that they were willing to endure sacrifices if necessary. Sometimes I find myself pitying fellow pastors in some of these countries that persecute Christians and they target the pastors. They do that in China. They do it in Sudan. They do it in, you know, uh, other countries, the Middle East. They target the pastors because they're the shepherds of the congregation. And oftentimes I feel sorry for my brothers who are in those dark, dingy, dangerous prison cells if they even let them live and they're day after day week after week month after month year goes on into year and I'm, i feel sorry but you know i've got a feeling that those brothers as they look through the window towards the, the sky above they see beyond their surroundings they see beyond the pain the sacrifices they're looking over into glory because they know that one day it'll be worth it i think about the apostle paul wow 
In 2 Timothy, probably one of his last writings, Paul was writing. Paul's getting to the end of his missionary journey. And what a journey it was. If you haven't read through the book of Acts, you need to go back and just digest that. Oh, what an appreciation I have for this man, Saul of Tarsus, who had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're talking about somebody who had a preeminent love for the Lord. He, I love the responsive reading that we had there in our worship guide. Paul basically said, you take all the things that I once had and all the favors that I had. He said, they're nothing but dumb compared to the riches of having Christ. These are Paul's words. You tell me if you sense any regret. Paul is looking beyond the beatings. And he was beaten nearly to death. They beat him to the maximum of the limits of 39 lashes that they could beat him. He was stoned, literally stoned, and, and, and left outside, dragged outside of the city for dead. He, he, he faced, he was on a shipwreck. He, he, he endured a shipwreck, was bitten by a poisonous snake, thrown into a Roman prison. Paul was looking beyond the shipwreck, beyond the snake bite, beyond the beatings, beyond the harassment, beyond the torture. He looked beyond the, the guillotine there in Rome, and he saw the glories that awaited him as a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed or for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge will give to me on that day and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. One of Billy and Ruth Graham's daughters, you know her, Ann Graham Lotz, often would use this expression. You can keep all the world. Just give me Jesus. And I believe she meant that with all her heart. You can keep all the world. But just give me Jesus. Is that your heartfelt plea today? Keep the world, all the things of the world. But just give me Jesus. Well, we need to move on and close. In addition to seeing that the true disciple put Jesus above all other relationships and, and the fact that true disciples or true discipleship is a clear call to self-denial and true disciples are willing to take up their crosses. Listen, true disciples carefully consider the cost of their commitment. True disciples don't walk into the Christian life and a faith relationship with Jesus Christ blindly. And we see that in the scriptures. Let's look at chapter 14 there. Pick up at verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. If you haven't had Charlie Bird sit down to tell you the story of building his and Cindy's house. Now that just blew my mind. I can hang a pair of shelves. And he built the whole blooming house. And it's a beautiful house. But I love it because he hear his story about tackling that kind of a project. What would have happened, Brother Charlie, if you'd have got maybe the basement done and the first floor ran out of money and just said, oh, that's it. I guess you and Cindy were just leaving the basement. <laughs> People would have made fun of you. They said, look at that fellow. He was going to build a house. All he's got is a basement with a first floor on it. Drive by. What could come? The spectacle of the neighborhood. 
not Charlie Byron. I knew this brother. He had it calculated down to the last nail, I promise you. Then Jesus is just using that illustration. You've got to consider the count the cost. When you make that, that decision to choose to follow Jesus Christ, understand that it's going to cost you and know what it will cost you and be ready to pay the price. In verse 31, or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 uh, 10, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So Jesus is basically saying, you know, count the cost. Leon Morris, in his commentary on this text, he said this, quote, the lesson is plain. Jesus does not want followers who rush into discipleship without thinking of what is involved. He is clear about the price. And Jesus doesn't want half-hearted, superficial followers who never have counted the cost. Go into it thinking, oh, this is a joy ride. Everybody will like me now because I'm a Christian. I'm going to be a part of the church and everything's going to be good. Jesus says, you might as well stay at home. Disciples, true disciples, carefully count the cost of their commitment. Realistic, informed, prayed over decisions are absolutely essential in discipleship. Let me say that one more time. Realistic, informed, prayed over decisions are essential in discipleship. One reason that I don't encourage parents of very young children, or I encourage parents of very young children not to pressure them to make a decision in salvation is simply because very few young children and even some preteens have any real concept of the biblical demands of authentic discipleship. Contrary to the methods of easy believism, becoming a lifelong follower of the Lord Jesus Christ involves much more than an emotional experience. Raising your hand, walking an aisle, signing a card, or even getting baptized. Most young people don't even have any idea I didn't. I didn't. Nine, ten years old, revival service, the setting was right. Service was emotional. Preacher was screaming. Tears were flowing. My buddies, they're antsy. First one that went, next one went. I thought, good gracious, I better go. Seems like the right thing to do. Plow on down there with them, pray to prayer. Sure did. Signed the card. People come up and hugged us and all. Oh, this is a glorious time. Went ahead and, and got baptized. And I'm not proud to tell you. After that moment, maybe I cleaned my act up a little bit around my brothers and sisters. But then I went on with my life. And I lived like the devil. I wasn't a true follower of Jesus Christ. I was a follower of Charlie Martin. I wanted the things that made me happy. I wanted the things that made me feel good. I wanted to do what was popular. I was going to get out there and live it up in this world that had all that to offer me. 
God let me go. I suffer consequences as anybody else will. But I stand before you today to praise the Lord with all every ounce of my love for him. To say that when he had let me run my course, one day out of the blue, he intercepted me. And I mean in a real way. So I didn't have a Damascus Road experience. I didn't get blind. My vision left on blurry, but the fact is, he spoke to my heart and basically said, okay, Charlie, are you ready to follow me? And do you know what? There was no argument. There was no debate. There was no discussion. I knew. I knew. And I was a changed person. I was a better husband to my wife. I was a better employee. I was a better friend. The goal of my life wasn't making money and having possessions. The goal of my life was to raise a family of God, blessed us with children, and he did. I wanted to be a good father. I wanted to be a good son to my my parents and be responsible to help them. I wanted to be a member of the church, and I don't mean just my name on the roll. I wanted to be in there serving the Lord. I was a disciple of Jesus Christ. No regrets, like Paul, no regrets. But you got to count the cost. you got to count the cross. And look what he says there in verse 33. This is usually an ouch moment for most Christians in Western society. He says, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Not only do you are you willing to sacrifice close relationships, of people that don't love the Lord like you love the Lord and they turn their backs on you and they ostracize you from the family or your social life or whatever. Jesus said, hey, what it won't just cost you relationships. It'll cost you things. And for those who are hanging on to money, and cars, and houses, and clothes, and retirement plans, and all those things, and you're clutching those things like a monkey is a banana, let me tell you something. Jesus said, if you're following me, be ready. He didn't say he would require us to give up everything. He said, you just be ready. And some of the people that we pray for, when we pray for our international missionaries, folks, it tears my heart up. I think about the sacrifices these young couples are making. They're walking away from good jobs. They're walking away from loving families. They're walking away from good communities. They're walking away from possessions. And they're almost selling everything to go and follow Jesus. And some of them are out there in the desert regions of Africa living and ministering to nomadic tribes. And they don't know where it's going to lead the next day. And they got their children. They're living in a tent, cooking over a fire. Listen, they're not doing that so that they will end up in some magazine of who's who. They're doing it because of the joy. The love they have for Jesus Christ. If you want to be lifted up in your spirit, oh, listen, you find out when our International Mission Board is having their next commission and service. Sister Wendy, and, and you, you know, we've gone, oh, my goodness, I'm going to tell you something. The, the utter dedication and commitment and humility of these precious brothers and sisters, and so many of them are so young. And they'll be standing up on that stage, and they'll be holding a little baby in their arms. They're talking about we're going to follow Jesus. I'm thinking, good gracious, Charlie, you don't even deserve to be in the same room with people like that. And they don't always live 
wasn't that many years ago that a deranged gunman in one of the African countries walked into a Baptist medical center where godly Christian doctor and nurses were saving people, ministering to people in those harsh conditions. And he walked in and he gunned them down. That's what Jesus is talking about. Well, let's close it. Verse 34 and 35. Because Jesus illustrates the uselessness of compromised followers. Don't be a disciple in mind only. In word only. Listen to the illustration Jesus uses. Salt is good. I agree. Only thing is I got high blood pressure. I have to be careful. But if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land. In other words, you can't use it as fertilizer or even for the dunghill because it breaks down the composing process. But men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus uses a very common element in their daily lives and our lives today, salt. We still use it, right? 21st century. He was in 1st century. We're 21st century. 20 centuries later, what are people shaking on their potatoes and green beans? Salt had a value of, of preserving things. We packed our meat. We'd kill hogs. I know getting lunchtime, so y'all were getting hungry. Just a picture of a big old platter of fried chitlins. But anyway, when we killed hogs, we didn't have freezers and things like that. We'd pack that meat down in salt. It had to last us the year. So that's what my dad and my brothers and I, we'd be packing down those hams and shoulders and side meat and stuff like that. Salt had a preserving tendency to it. But you see, it had to be pure salt. And in that time, Jesus knew in the back of the people's minds, they knew there was pure salt, and then there was that cheap salt that you got from Walmart. I mean, uh, the Dead Sea, where you would just, you know, and the salt that came from the Dead Sea oftentimes had minerals in, in blended into it, and therefore it would degrade a lot faster than pure salt. And Jesus just using the illustration here to show, you know, really there's no room in the kingdom of God for people who are useless and compromised. Because if you are, Jesus said, I'm throwing you out. A superficial believer has no capacity to preserve moral standards in society. Chew on that a little bit. Salt that loses its flavor doesn't, it doesn't flavor anything. Superficial believers have no capacity to preserve moral standards in our society. Do you wonder, do you wonder why our American culture is I'm talking literally going to hell in a handbasket because we got all of these superficial Christians out there trying to sprinkle worthless Christianity that is so compromised with the standards of the world and they're wondering why are our families deteriorating? Why are our children so so di disturbed? Why is there so much more moral decline? Why is there so much you know violence and domestic violence? Oh, what's happened? I'll tell you what's happening. We don't have enough pure salt coming out of the churches into the communities and into our places of leadership anymore. That's why Jesus said, you may recall. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. But then he also reminded his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads just for a moment, okay? 
having heard what God has put on my heart today. And I promise you, every word that I preach to you, God has preached back to me three, maybe four times. So I know. The question I'm going to ask you is a question I have asked and I continue to ask myself. Are you a genuine, true disciple of Jesus Christ? There will come a day when everyone will stand in judgment. And I got a feeling for a lot of those watered down, compromised, superficial Christians. The words that Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, when he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. I stand before you today to tell you this. It is with my whole heart that I believe the only people, the only people who will step into glory and personally experience the magnificence of eternal life in the kingdom of God are those who have authentically followed him on this earth. Are you one of those? Father, we thank you that you have spoken through your inerrant, infallible word, a timeless message that every person professing to be a believer of Jesus Christ needs to take to heart and do a quick and thorough heart examination. And Lord, I pray that as we move out beyond our comfort zone into a world that is fastly becoming pagan and secular and humanistic around us, I pray that you will give us the boldness and the compassion to call people to authentic discipleship, not just to some watered down version of getting their name on the church roster. And may you be glorified, Lord. May you receive the glory as we see the impact of authentic disciples upon our world that so desperately needs you, Lord Jesus. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Brother Mark, however God may lead you, I'll ask you to come.